soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, this morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm. Now, you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. Welcome to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm podcast. My name is Jason Dias, and welcome back. As I've mentioned, we're playing songs that were popular in 1990 and 1991, and that's Madonna with Justify My Love. Big hit in January of 1991, as we're broadcasting today, the 14th of January in the year of our Lord, 2021. I went back and looked at the calendar, and 30 years ago, today it was a Monday. And what we did not know at the 217th Evacuation Hospital is that in less than 72 hours, we would be on the business end of Operation Desert Shield, and then 24 hours later on the business end of Operation Desert Storm to, in fact, be a small part of the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. I've been talking about my experience on the podcast, but I wanted to also talk to my dear, dear friend who you've heard me mention on the podcast several times, Mike Alonzo. Uh, he was he was my best buddy in the unit. Uh, we were inseparable during before, during, and after the war. The entire time I spent the 217th Evacuation Hospital, he was one of the first person people I met when I got to the unit after my time in the active duty army. And since everyone's situation was was different, everyone's war experience was as unique as the individual themselves. I wanted to start by asking Mike if he remembers what he was doing. 30 years ago when he had to box up his own life and report back to active duty in the United States Army in support of, at the time, Operation Desert Shield. I was working at the Baptist as a non-registered lab tech. I was also going to school for nursing, and life was good for me. Um, I was, at that moment in time, dating um, who was uh, uh, Gina, who is now my current Gina? wife. Yeah, <laughs> Still married. We're actually yep. <laughs> dating. Still married. Yes, yes. Very, very, very happily married. And um, I, it was going great for me. I mean, I was making, yeah. at back then, I was making good money. Um, I was getting my GI Bill. I was right. my reserve pay plus my checks from the Baptist. Living at home with my parents. So no bills. Um, I was actually financially pretty good back then. I mentioned on last week's episode that I found out that I'd been activated with a message that had been left on my answering machine in my apartment. I asked Mike, hey, how did you find out that we had been activated back into the full-time military? I I remember my parents telling me I needed to call the armory when I came home. So they got You said back then we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have anything like that. So it was actually, yeah. No, no, I had a phone call uh, telling me to call the Armory and report for active duty status. Which we all did on the 26th of December. Fast forward about two and a half weeks to the 14th of January. It has been a just a dizzying maze of go here and do this, go here and do that. We had gone out to Camp Bullis. There were so many people in that Texas National Guard 
outfit who I don't even think knew how to hold an M16, much less clear it and, and load it and shoot it. And so well, there had been so many things going on. The days have been very, very long. And in a, in a conversation off the air, Mike was one of the first people I talked to, and I made the decision back in August to do Thunder and Lightning, the Desert Storm podcast. And he used a term with me. He said he had always been a bit of a war junkie, and I knew what he meant by that. I was the same way. I loved playing war when I was a kid. I read all the World War II books I could, all the books on Vietnam I could. But it wasn't because I thought war was a good thing. I was interested in the history, and Mike was very, very much the same way. Oh yes, yes. I was, I was. Uh, I, I can remember from being a kid, you know, playing war as a kid, playing reading war, books yeah. about it, being being very in depth with our history as far as reading into World War World War Two, and a lot into Vietnam um, back yeah. then, and just um, being very, I guess I don't know, mesmerized by by the military, the U.S. military, and wanting to serve. Um, I, I remember when I signed up, I signed up, my parents had to sign for me because I was still so young, considered yeah. <laughs> to be underage. Yeah. Yep. And I wanted to go infantry. Yeah. But they didn't want me to go infantry, so I have found combat medic as being something that can hopefully take me to the next step on the civilian market, and which is what I did. And, and um, I jokingly say this, I didn't go active duty because I was afraid they always say never meet your heroes. I was afraid I was going to hate the military if I went active duty. <laughs> so I decided to go guard part-time. And if I liked it, I was going to go active duty, you know, get kind of get my feet wet a little bit and not have to shock my system. But uh, I really enjoyed yeah. the time I was in. There's a subtle thing in that conversation with Mike where he talks about, just as I did, being interested in World War II in Vietnam and just kind of whoops, skipping over Korea, which was a major war in its own right. I mean, most Gen Xers and baby boomers, their, their, rec their understanding of Korea is from the television show MASH, which is still on streaming services to this very day. And although it, it happens in the future, I, I will begin to feel some commonality with the Korean War veterans, because Desert Storm has sort of been one of those forgotten conflicts. No big deal. History is like that sometimes. We don't talk about the Spanish-American War much anymore or the Mexican-American War. Yes, believe it or not, the United States fought a two-year war against the nation of Mexico. It's why I'm in America right now in South Texas and not in northern Mexico. Mike and I both love the history of the military and the history of warfare, but as I mentioned earlier, neither one of us could could know that we were almost going to go. My memory is that first Monday night, we showed up at the armory ready to go, ready to say our goodbyes, and yet I was very happy to have it confirmed with Mike that the first night we thought we were leaving, again, that hurry up and wait, we were told, nope, not tonight, go home, we'll see you tomorrow, and we'll try it all again. I remember having to show up more than once to our armory. And I remember that I remember, too. I remember each time we went, we got sent home and we got a little yep. further along in the process. We got on the yep. bus and the buses started and they turned off and we got off the bus and they got sent home. The very last time we showed up, I remember walking into the armory and they wouldn't let family pass the door, which was different exactly. from before. Yeah. Yep. And then I remember seeing some of our guard members on the roof you know, fully armed, you know, with an M16. Yeah, and I'm thinking, okay, I think this is it. 
We got on the buses. This is the one. Yeah. They started up and they started driving off, and I'm thinking. And you went to Kelly Air okay. Force Base. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And um, I th- I'm thinking, okay, this is it. We're going. And we were going. We were absolutely going. As I mentioned, uh, Mike and I had some things in common. You know, we were both young, unattached guys, and it wasn't so difficult for us to pack up our lives and move on to this next adventure. That was not the case for a lot of the people in the 217th Evacuation Hospital. There were uh, married soldiers, uh, men and women with families. And I'll be honest, I didn't have a lot of empathy for that. And that's going to come into play the first night of the war uh, with a situation that I'll always regret. But Mike and I, in many ways, there's no other way to say it. It wasn't because we were we were hoping to do anything heroic, but we had lived our lives growing up hoping someday to be in a real war, and now we were about to be. And unapologetically, we're kind of excited about it, and Mike was too. Oh, yes, yes. I, I, yeah. I, I, back then, they used to call it your salad, your, your medals and your ribbons on your chest. Um, right. I wanted my salad. I wanted that experience. I wanted that <laughs> combat patch. You know, those are yep. the things on that... On your right shoulder. Yep. That, yeah, certain people, you know, they, they want to be tested. You know, they, they, yep. they, you know, but the, the thing about me is I wanted to be tested, but unfortunately in our, our profession, in our MOS, you know, people have to be, soldiers have to be hurt for us to work. Even right. though I wanted yeah. to go, I kind of didn't want to have to work on anybody. And thankfully we didn't have to. We didn't ever treat a single casualty that wasn't some, you know, falling down the steps or bumping into a door kind of thing, just the basic little things that happen in any deployment. I have to go back for a minute to December of 1990. As I've mentioned, I was in the infantry for three years. I was a young guy. I didn't know how to be scared because when you're that age, you, you, you don't think anything can happen to you. The only thing I really feared was boredom. And I knew any kind of military deployment was going to involve moments of tedium and boredom. I went to Kmart. We had a Kmart in Universal City at the time, a couple days before Christmas, looking for the hottest handheld video game at the time and the most advanced, the original Nintendo Game Boy. And I will never forget this, another one of those moments of grace leading up to our deployment. The manager of the Kmart comes out and says, we're sold out, but I've put one aside for my son, and I'm going to sell it to you. It was $99, which was a lot of money. And I will never forget the kindness of that Kmart manager. And if you're the young guy that didn't get that Game Boy on Christmas Day, I want you to know the Game Boy that would have been yours uh, traveled halfway around the world to the business end of Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Mike had one, too, and we played those things constantly. Oh, yes. I, we, we played that thing all the way over there and all the way there. Uh, we had the core to it. We can play, we yep. play golf, play games tennis. against each other. Yes, golf and tennis. Oh, yes. That's right. That's right. Yes, that's yes. right. I have a Yeah, you, you I have beat a me a lot. <laughs> well, and we, 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 we beat each other a lot. I have, I have a postcard. Um, I'm going to post this picture during the podcast. Uh, the postcard I sent to my parents the night after the war started. In fact, the postcard still says Desert Shield. It doesn't even say Desert Storm. It says De- Operation Desert Shield, you know, with all the patriotic stuff on the front. And on the very back, it says, P.S., please send Nerf basketball and AA batteries. 
because I, yeah. I knew we needed those to keep – I think the Game Boy took four AA batteries. And in case you're wondering, folks, the flight from San Antonio, Texas to Saudi Arabia, what was it, Mike? It had to be over 12 hours. It took us a long time. It was. We were we – were, I remember it being somewhere close to over 24 to 36-hour yeah, flight. Yeah, it was, it, it was a long time. It was, it, was, it was a really, really long flight. It was a layover. Real, yeah, yeah layovers, layovers and stuff like that. For many years after the war, I never really even talked about it. There wasn't, wasn't a whole lot to say. It was over pretty quickly. But after September 11th, my mom bought me a hat that said Operation Desert Storm. And I took the patch off the hat and put it on my backpack. My my time as a professional speaker coincided with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I found out that a lot of people thought Desert Storm was the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And Mike kind of experienced the same thing. Yeah, yeah. For a while there, it it just you know when people ask me, you know, did I serve? And I always have to explain that I yeah I did serve in the first Gulf War because right. like, people automatically think oh you served in Iraq. Two thousand and three. Yeah, Iraq. Exactly. No, I've served exactly. back in the day, and like you said, thirty years is a long time. I remember talking to, I was looking at buying a a mobile home, and. I was talking with the young man selling it, and I noticed he was in the Marine Corps, and I said, hey, you know, I served, I served back in Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. And the first words out of his mouth, oh, yeah, my dad did too. And I'm thinking, man, that's a long time ago. People start realizing that it's, it was a long time ago. You know, I was, yeah. I was not even 21. I was 23 at the time, and I told Mike, I don't mean for this to sound, you know, braggadocious or full of misplaced bravado, but when I look back on 30 years during the buildup to and our time in country during the war, you sort of forget about all the, the hardships. Uh, those things just sort of fade away after 30 years, and in some ways, maybe because we're so very young, I really do think of those as the very, very best of times, and I asked him how he felt about that. Yeah, yeah, I do, because you you bond different with somebody. I mean, war, yeah. war tends to bring it out with you, and you talk to any war veteran. You know, they've gone over, especially now in, in the current situations where they actually lost friends, but they say yeah. that they wouldn't yeah. change it. Other than the losing their comrades, they, they say that it's yeah. just they, it's a special it's a special bond. I don't mean to overly romanticize the experience in Desert Storm, but again, Mike and I were not married. We were not parents. We were unattached. We were bachelors. We were young. And I think both of us had the same experience or the same sensation the night that the war started that, hey, this is this is why we joined the military after I mentioned a previous podcast. Being three years in the United States infantry is doing some of the hardest physical, mental practice every single day and never getting to play in the big game. Operation Desert Storm was the biggest game on the planet in 1991 and the greatest show on earth since World War II in Vietnam. And I think both of us had this sense that, hey, we've, we've sort of reached where we've always wanted to be in our military careers. And I asked Mike about that. I, I finally, in my eyes, reached what I felt as part of my military career. However short it was, I, I, I hit that, I checked that box, I guess, for lack of a better term. I think Mike enjoyed the action, and I think that might have had something to do with him wanting to pursue a career in law enforcement, which he did after the war. Yeah, I've always wanted to be a police officer. I've always wanted to serve. Um, you know, it's, for me, it was that box I needed to check. And in law enforcement, I've been very fortunate to 
to check a lot of boxes, you know, being on SWAT and going yeah. into investigations and working with a bunch of very excellent, excellent officers in different fields and different different departments and agencies from federal to state to local. And Mike is still serving in the Kirby Police Department to this very day. As you heard, he mentioned his wartime sweetheart. He has grown children now. I have a grown 20-year-old son of my own. But I asked him, if you said to your your kids, your adult children, hey, do you know what Operation Desert Storm was or is? Would they know? No, other than yeah. think my dad served it. I mean, it, it was so it was over so fast. It was over fast, but nobody knew that when we were saying goodbye to our loved ones there in front of the armory in mid-January 1991. And one of my most clear and present memories will always be Mike's mom. And she was just, you know, like any mom, she was beside herself with worry and anxiety and and sadness. And she was uh, very, very emotional. You know, my mom and dad were there, but I, like I said, I'd already been in the army. They'd said goodbye to me before. I'd, you know, traveled to different parts of the world uh, to have her young son and a wonderful young man, you know, being separated from her like this really for the first time going into a completely unknown situation i will never i will never forget just how emotional she was and she's since passed but i asked mike if he could go back 30 years and speak to his mom on that on that curb in front of the armory what would he tell her don't worry i'll be fine don't worry yeah i mean i at that time i felt i i had a, a good head on my shoulders and good training yep. you know my mind was right and that's 90% of the battle right there, you know. And part of me just was like, yeah, we're going to go fight Iraq. They're not very good. We'll be They're okay. They're not good, yeah. You know? We'll be okay, yeah. There's no way. They were in a stalemate with, with the Iranian army for so long. Right, so you're either one. Bring them both on is what it, I would say. Let's get this over with right now. Yeah, this is not going to be. Settle this, yeah. Yeah, um, they were like in your previous podcast, you said they were projecting 30,000 deaths. My main concern was just the chemical warfare. And that concern about chemical warfare was on everybody's mind from President Bush right on down to Specialist Alonzo and Specialist Dias. As we wrap up today's podcast, that is a, that leads to a very, very interesting and famous moment in my mind that I'm going to cover here in just a second. But the last thing I wanted to ask Mike about, again, to confirm my memory, myself, Mike Alonzo, and John Moya, we were the three amigos over in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And on the night before we left to come home, when the war had ended, uh, we were told, you know, we've got our head count, we've got our chalks, we know who's leaving for the airport at what time. And we were basically locked in where they say, you cannot leave the building uh, tonight. And I went to Mike and I went to John and I said, if we obey the rules tonight, because it's the last night, we will never forgive ourselves. And I have a picture from an old box camera that I had with me of the window that we snuck out of to go buy hamburgers. It was like a food truck set up by these Koreans. I have no idea how they got there. I don't even know if it was really hamburger, but it was better than the MREs we'd been issued for our last meal in country. And I asked Mike, do you remember that night sneaking out of the building, that secret mission to go buy those Korean hamburgers? Yes, I do. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, 
And so Korean hamburgers would be the last dinner we had in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. There is a lot of great history coming up. Uh, like I said, we don't know this on the 14th of January, 1991, 30 years ago this very day, but we were less than 48 hours from being in country in less than 72 hours of being at the epicenter of the greatest show on earth. I wanted to go back to Mike's comment about chemical weapons. It was the one thing that everybody worried about, myself included. There's a picture I've posted before. It's the night that we leave Saudi Arabia, the night before we leave Saudi Arabia. It's a picture of myself, Mike, and John. And if you look closely, you'll see Mike and I have our gas mask. I compare it to the way a lady has her purse with her all the time. We simply never went anywhere without that gas mask. It was my pillow. It was with me every single second that I was in country. But that concern about chemical weapons leads to a very unique and, I believe, divine moment as we departed San Antonio Kelly Air Force Base. And join me, if you will, on the tarmac at Kelly Air Force Base on a winter night in mid-January, insanely cold. And to wrap up this story, I need you to turn back the Wayback Machine even more to March 4th, 1986, the day before I joined the Army the first time. I went down to the Alamo. Uh, you know, it was free. I was just going to go see some of the hometown sites before I joined the Army. And while I was there at the Alamo, ran into a priest that I had known from my family's days at St. Monica's. He was what we called a substitute priest. He would come in when our priests were on vacation or at a conference or something like that. And he was what you would call in those days sort of a, a hippie priest. He was a young guy. He was all into the, you know, the peace and love and can't we all get along, turn the other cheek kind of guy. And he recognized me there in the Alamo. He was a teacher at, I think, Central Catholic High School. He was there with a, uh, with a field trip. And he walked over and absentmindedly called me by my older brother's name. He said, hey, Chris, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm Jason. Chris is my older brother. I said, I, I joined the Army and I leave tomorrow. So I wanted to come see some of the sites of my hometown. And the hippie uh, peacenik in him kicked in. He's like, oh, no, Ronald Reagan has recruited another, another soldier for his you know, wartime legions, even though there was no war in 1986. And then he caught himself. To his credit, he caught himself. He goes, oh, sorry, sorry. And right there in the church portion of the Alamo, the chapel portion of the Alamo, which is what it's called, he puts the old numbers 624 on me in Latin, you know, may the Lord bless and keep you, may he make his face shine upon you, may he look upon you with favor and give you peace right there in the Alamo. And from that moment forward, I, I can go back and just waypoint so many moments where something terrible should have happened to me and didn't. Falling asleep at the wheel in my car in 1988, rolling down Highway 101 and should have been ejected from the car and should have been killed and you know crawled out of there without a scratch. The first car that comes over the hill is an off-duty California Highway Patrolman who happens to have a very, very early modeled cell phone with him to call for help and get me to a little diner in Gilroy and just little moments like that all along the way. I'm convinced another such moment happens as we arrive at Kelly Air Force Base. Um, if you'll join me again at Kelly Air Force Base in mid-January 1991, 
We've said goodbye to our families. We've gotten on the buses. We're at Kelly Air Force Base. We're in this secure hangar. There are no telephones. You don't have to worry about people texting their family because those things do not exist. We're being told nothing. We literally have no idea where we're going. The number one rumor is that we're going to Muscat, Oman, the Emirate of Oman, which is not so bad. Um, the Air Force lady, the, the uh, manifest officer, comes up and says, this is the first manifest call for the 217th Evacuation Hospital in route to Re. And she caught herself. She said, Re. And she looked over, and they shook, her head, they shook their heads like, no, no, don't say that. And it hit me. It's Riyadh. It's Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And so I went outside to where the senior enlisted people were. I told you we had a very eccentric company commander. He, just, I, he wasn't a bad guy. He was just, there's no other word for it. He was eccentric. He was a full colonel in the Texas National Guard. And I said, if we are in fact going to Riyadh, he's like, you're not supposed to know that. I said, okay, pretend I don't know this. All of our mop gear, our chemical suits, mop is M-O-P-P, mission-oriented protective posture is what it was called. All of our mop suits were in our green duffel bags, which were going to be stored under the plane. I said, what happens if we land in Saudi Arabia and the war's already started and there is a chemical environment? And everyone kind of looked at me like, ugh, it's him again, and doggone it, he's right. Everybody had to come out of that room. There's a 400 people in this unit, find their duffel bag, and they all look exactly alike, these big green duffel bags. I had two strips of reflective tape at the bottom of mine. I found mine right away. And as a reward for this wonderful suggestion, I was tasked with guarding the pallets for the balance of the night in freezing cold temperature. Well, I grew up at 6715 Cypress Lake in Wood Lake near Kirby, Texas, where Mike is a police officer. And as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, everybody in my neighborhood was either in the Army or the Air Force or had been in the Army or the Air Force and was working as a civilian contractor for the military. One family, the Olivers, they were a black family across the street from us. I knew that Mr. Oliver worked at Kelly Air Force Base. My dad worked at Randolph Air Force Base. Mr. Oliver worked at Kelly Air Force Base. I had no idea what he did. I assumed he was a mechanic, like a lot of people were in those days. Well, as I'm standing out there on the tarmac in mid-January, freezing, literally freezing, uh, I'm out there and there is a little tent set up by the, the flight line, it's the final manifest. It's where you go and basically say, hey, you're gone, you're gone, you're gone. They just put you on the airplane. As I'm standing there on the tarmac, I watch as a guy walks between the tents. There's a little flap in the tents, and I see a black gentleman walk by, and in just absolute desperation, I yell out, Mr. Oliver. A second later, pokes his head through the, the, the break in the flaps, sees me, and again, absentmindedly also calls me by my brother's name. Chris, Chris, what are you doing out there? I said, I'm Jason and I'm freezing to death. He grabs me, he said, come on in here, come on in here. Sits me down, makes me a cup of coffee and confirms, yeah, uh, you are going to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. So I was one of the first people who knew we were going to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And so next week on the podcast, Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm, it's war. And I've got to tell you, that incident with Mr. Oliver, it was just another one of those moments where I kind of looked up and said, someone's watching over me. 
I went back to that that afternoon at the Alamo with Father Tony giving me the blessing, and just I, I went into that war with so much confidence after that little moment on the tarmac. But next week uh, on the show, the war starts. And again, that concern over chemical weapons is going to lead to one of the moments during the war that I have always regretted, and we're going to talk about it next week. Thank you so much for listening to Thunder and Lightning Operation Desert Storm. Thank you, Mike Alonzo, police officer out in Kirby, Texas, my battle buddy, my absolute best pal before, during, and after the war. It's been great reconnecting with him 30 years later, trying to keep this in the 20-minute range, and we're in the 27th minute, now 28th minute. So thank you for your patience. Lots and lots of great history coming up. The shooting war starts next week, and we'll talk about it then. Take care. We got to fight the